stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good morning. Welcome aboard, folks. Rob Breckenridge uh, filling in today uh, and uh, the rest of this week. Next week as well, uh, here on 770-CHQR, number 403-974-8255-974-TALK. Plenty to get to uh, on the program today. We'll talk a bit more about Canada-U.S. relations. Had the big uh, virtual meeting yesterday between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden. They, they seem to be much closer than was the, the case with the Prime Minister and President you know, last year and the previous four years. But what does that actually mean in practice? Where, where are we going to see some movement on some important issues? We'll talk about that coming up uh, later on today. Also, Janice McKinnon, uh, former Saskatchewan finance minister, of course, uh, oversaw the, the McKinnon report in Alberta, uh, taking a look at how money is spent in this province. And she's got some interesting thoughts as well on the question of how we generate revenue and the Business Council of Alberta last week tried to kickstart that conversation. Now, we'll get into that coming up later on today. We're going to hear from the commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, and we'll talk about their plans to restart their season. Also had this announcement from the province this week about a new 50-50 lottery draw to help Alberta's junior teams, both in the WHL and the AJHL. So we'll get to that coming up later on this afternoon. Uh, off the top this morning, and you've been hearing on the news, uh, today is the day that appointments were opening up for any Albertans, well, technically born in 1946. So you might not have turned 75 yet, but if you were born in 1946, you can now book your appointment to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Plenty of folks are attempting to do so, uh, so much so, in fact, that they're having some issues, maybe not surprisingly, uh, with both the website and the phone number. Uh, the website, by the way, it's ahs.ca slash COVID vaccine. You can also call HealthLink uh, to book an appointment, 811. So far, as of 920, Alberta Health Services say more than 4,500 Albertans have successfully booked a vaccine appointment. A lot of other folks, though, having some trouble getting through. And uh, it sounds as though some of these appointments are now going to stretch into April. Uh, that from uh, AHS saw on their Twitter feed just a few minutes ago as well. So we'll continue to monitor that situation. Meanwhile, speaking of vaccines, it looks as though the U.S. is uh, on the verge of approving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, some of their data released today, and it looks as though the uh, FDA very close to that emergency authorization use. And if that happens, looks as though the U.S. would have three to four million doses uh, of that vaccine available next week, which means the U.S. continues to pull uh, further ahead than Canada. Things are starting to increase here in terms of vaccine availability. The two we have approved, not clear when Health Canada is prepared to give the green light to Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca. So it's prompted some conversations, obviously, about uh, prioritizing the vaccines that are available, how we go about doing that, and also the question of one dose versus two dose. Uh, the United Kingdom has taken the approach uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine of spreading out the doses uh, 12 weeks and uh, there was some, some comments today from one of their chief uh, scientific advisors that they believe that is working well. Is it something maybe Canada should consider once we start to have more doses uh, available? So a lot of decisions to be made about uh, how we approach this. And I think we're also learning a lot more about the, the real payoff that these vaccines can have and a lot of the data that's coming in, in particular from Israel. Now, but joining us to talk about all this this morning, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Zane Chagla. He's uh, an infectious disease specialist in Hamilton, associate professor at McMaster University. Dr. Chagla, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome. To uh, the no problem. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, by the way, the, the Johnson & Johnson data out today, and it, it looks it looks pretty good. I mean, this is a one-shot uh, vaccine, which is important. It's it's much easier to, to store, to transport. Uh, so what, what do you make of uh, what we saw in this data today and how imminent that, that vaccine might be here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely promising. So again, this is a one dose. The numbers are slightly lower. We're talking about, and again, they were looking at moderate to severe COVID-19. So uh, people that, um, you know, had symptoms or reasonable symptoms or people that were hospitalized, um, the data looks very promising, about 60 to 70 percent protection against severe and and moderate COVID-19. In South Africa, interestingly, they saw a lot of B1351, the variant there, and still saw about 50% effectiveness day 14. That goes up to about 60% effectiveness by day uh, 28. Um, And I think the elephant in the room is this vaccine is cheap. It's a single dose. It can be stored in a regular refrigerator. uh, And it's you know, it's one that could be scaled up incredibly quickly. So this is super promising data. Um, you know, it, it, it would mean if everyone got a single dose of this vaccine tomorrow, hospitalizations would likely cease or become significantly less. People would be protected. There's some data that actually prevents transmission, which is, you know, as good as it gets. So, you know, this is going to be a very, very important global vaccine. The hope is places like us can get it, but my equal and and even more bigger hope is that places that are much more harder to reach, low and middle income countries have a good access to this, uh, this vaccine because it will change the pandemic for them as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, South Africa actually switched over from the AstraZeneca vaccine to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's interesting, isn't it, how high Pfizer and Moderna sort of set the bar uh, when it comes to vaccine efficacy. But, you know, we, we shouldn't sell the Johnson & Johnson vaccine short. You mentioned that there are some notable differences in where these trials were conducted. And, and mm-hmm. that actually speaks well of, of what the Johnson & Johnson results show. And particularly when it comes to severe illness, when it comes to death, and, and those are obviously the most important factors we're worried about, the results look really, really good but I, I guess that's that's the problem in assessing these vaccines after we saw the initial results from Pfizer and Moderna everything else seems to come up short yeah I, mean, I think there's there's the other part is framing the context right Pfizer and Moderna ran their trials largely during the summertime when as we all know the density of infections was much less um, you know and, and Johnson and Johnson the, the data submitted today cut off on January 22nd that is actually you know when we saw this massive wave occur across the earth where the risk of one being infected is actually much higher so it may be a little bit of apples to oranges to do that comparison uh, and again, we, we discount, you know, we say 98% or 95%, but we discount practicality, right? I would rather a 75% adequate vaccine be administered to 10 million people than worrying about how to administer a um, million doses of a very high cold chain, difficult vaccine in that sense, right? And so, you know, the effects from a population level are going to be there with Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and, and again, we, we have to recognize these trials are a little bit different. Their populations are different. And so it's very hard to make that cross comparison. 
Now, with regard to, to the Pfizer and, and I guess the Moderna vaccine, uh, there, there's been some conversation about how to approach the two doses. And, and, and I mean, look, the data from Pfizer does show that there's still some good protection after that first dose. But yeah, I mean, it's something you want to be careful about. So as, as Canada moves forward and our, our availability of vaccines starts to pick up, and there was a study last week in the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting maybe we look at a one dose approach or stretching out the interval between doses. How, how should we approach that do you think so i mean i think you know number one not all of these vaccines are the same and so moderna and pfizer fit into one bucket and astrazeneca fits into another bucket mm-hmm. you know astrazeneca there can be a good case made to deferring the dose to day 90 in that vaccine because actually in the clinical trial there were a number of people that got the dose day 90 and they studied them they saw their effects they saw them relatively similar to people that got their dose earlier So I think you can make that argument to people to say, hey, this is going to work just as well. We actually have real-time data on people on how to do it. Uh, And, and, you know, you can make that argument for it. Where Pfizer and Moderna are a little bit different is that no one has really studied what day 90 looks like for those people. And so, you know, there were people up to day 42 in the Pfizer trial that got the second dose. The authors of that, that paper in the New England Journal of Medicine really just went back and said, You know, if we take a look at people 14 days after they get their first dose to when they get their second dose, how many, how much protection is there? They suggested 92% based on the FDA data, which is great, but you don't know what those people look like you know, three, four, five weeks after their first dose. That that right. assumption is really based on people who got their first dose, who will eventually get their second dose, what it looks like for that short time interval in that sense. There is probably some buffer. We just don't know what that right number is. And I think given that context, going to day 42 makes sense because there were people studied in the clinical trials that went to that. When we talk about day 90, it's a whole lot more dicey at that point. And, and you know, realistically, we don't know what the profile of someone who gets two mRNA vaccines day 90 looks like in the short term or the long term. Recognizing this 95%, I think we're trying to achieve in terms of efficacy might not be achieved by that regimen. And we don't have any examples from other vaccines uh, of this platform that we can draw from. You know, adenovirus vaccines have been given in Ebola, and so at least we have some data from there, whereas RNA vaccines, we really have no data on how they work long-term. And so really that deferral strategy gets more dicier and dicier and dicier. Yeah, so it's something we, we've got to be very careful about. I, I get the some of the, the points that have been made about making the most of the doses we have available, but we also got to you know stay in, in line with what the data is telling us, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we want the maximum efficacy for our population. I think we're willing to accept a buffer for the logistics and getting more doses out. But we, the last thing we want is to necessarily disrupt what these vaccinations are supposed to do. I would say, you know, places like England and Quebec and New Brunswick are going to be interesting as we watch their individuals to answer these questions. I think we'll get a better sense of whether or not it's an effective strategy in in real-time populations, or a strategy may change in three months once this is all sorted out. But for now, I don't think we have better data to change for more than a 42-day regimen, unless, again, something else shows up in the interim. 
It's interesting because, you know, there's increasing optimism when it comes to vaccinations. Canada's supply is going to continue to increase in terms of, you know, the the payoff. We're seeing some really encouraging data, data out of Israel, uh, suggesting that indeed these vaccines do appear to block uh, transmission, not not just illness. So that's really encouraging. We're seeing some countries where where cases have come down substantially, even even Mm -hmm. without uh, mass vaccination, uh, India, even South Africa, too. So we're seeing some really encouraging trends, but you know, we're not out of the woods yet, obviously, and there is still concern about the situation here. I mean, how would you describe the, the situation we're at right now, both in terms of vaccines, in terms of what we're seeing the virus do? It seems like we're, we're in an interesting spot here. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're in this precarious place. I mean, I, I keep describing it as, you know, turbulence before the landing, where we have, you know, the, the ability to shift, pivot. You know, we don't know if rates are going to go up or down with the variants and the re-engagement with society. The vaccines are getting out there, but we're just starting to see community vaccinations across the country. I mean, you're hearing about Alberta, and, and there are challenges even with getting that going. You know, we're, we're at this tipping point where things could go south a little bit. But long term, I think, you know, we, we're getting better weather. People are going to be outdoors more. Vaccines are getting into the right arms. We've seen incredible work done in long-term care where vaccines have shut down transmission and, and lower deaths dramatically. Um, there is a lot of hope and optimism that we hit that landing. It's just going to be bumpy for the last little bit of that trip. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Chagla, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. No problem. All the best. All right, to you as well. Thanks again for joining us here. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Zane Chagla. He's a professor at uh, McMaster University, an infectious disease specialist in Hamilton. So his thoughts on some of what the data is telling us about vaccines, again, really encouraging. Now it's the case of, all right, well, let's get those vaccines here. Let's get them into to people's arms. And obviously, we've had some issues on that front over the last couple of months. Hopefully, that's starting to change. So we mentioned at the outset some issues this morning, uh, you know, with just such an overwhelming amount of demand uh, for um, people to book vaccine appointments. Anyone born in uh, 1946 or earlier now is the opportunity to book a vaccine appointment. But again, the system's having some trouble keeping up with that. So we'll keep you updated on that. But that's at least, you know, a a step in the right direction, right? That we're now starting to expand availability and, and hopefully we can get all of this ironed out and keep going down that path. Already what we've seen in Alberta, and we haven't vaccinated a lot of people here yet, but uh, that we're able to target long-term care homes. And we're already seeing as a result, you know, cases coming down, the number of outbreaks coming down in long-term care. In fact, it's to the point now where there's a real conversation happening about, you know, can we start to safely ease a lot of the restrictions that are in place for long-term care? Because this whole situation has been so incredibly isolating, so difficult on the residents. So those are the conversations you like to be in a position to have. We got a lot to get to uh, on the Wednesday edition of the program. Again, 403-974-8255 is the number here today. My name is Rob Breckenridge filling in. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Latest from Alberta Health Services. 6,000 Albertans now, age 75 and older, uh, have been booked to receive their vaccine. AHS says appointments continue to be available. Uh, but obviously, there have been some issues for folks this morning getting through on the website, getting through on the phones. Um, so it sounds like they're trying to sort those out. But people are still getting through and people are still booking appointments now up to 6,000. But again, it's a reminder, right, where 
yeah, look, for the past couple of months, the biggest issue we've been dealing with is the fact that we just didn't have a sufficient quantity of vaccines, disruptions to our supply, and, and that all rested the feet of the federal government. But this is where the province has got to make sure they're ready to go and to be able to do their part. And again, it's not to say that, that we failed on this front and maybe issues like this are, are to be expected. But what's going to happen when we open this up even further? What's going to happen a little bit down the road when, uh, you know, the, the appointments are available to a much larger number of Albertans? Are we going to be able to handle all of that? So hopefully there's an opportunity here, not just to, to fix whatever's going on this morning, but to kind of learn some lessons and say, okay, what happens when we have, you know, double the amount of people or 10 times the number of people at some point looking to book vaccine appointments? So we're going to be able to handle that sort of volume because then that becomes a, an issue for the provinces. The feds are the ones that got to get the vaccines here. The provinces are the ones that got to figure out how to administer them, make sure people get appointments, know where to go, and that we've got that all taken care of. Then there's the tracking of, of first dose and second dose. So there, there's a lot logistically that the province has got to be responsible for. And we got to make sure we can hit the ground running when we get the availability, right? So we'll continue to monitor that uh, as it unfolds here this morning. Uh, again, uh, 811, you can call Alberta Health Link, or the uh, website is ahs.ca slash COVID vaccine. So those appointments are, are available as of today, but as mentioned, still some issues with the uh, booking process. All right. A lot more to get to in the program today. Coming up after 10 o'clock, we're going to hear from Janice McKinnon of the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, former Saskatchewan finance minister, of course, uh, led that panel, a blue ribbon panel that took a, a deep dive in Alberta's spending and made a lot of recommendations for maybe how we, we change the amount of money we spend in Alberta, the way we spend money in Alberta. Now, we got a budget coming down tomorrow. And it's probably not going to be a pretty picture, as we're all anticipating. So what kind of conversation, though, needs to happen about overhauling spending in Alberta? And what about on the revenue side? Now, the premier has ruled out any, any tax increases in this budget. And I don't think anyone was, was expecting that. But at what point or is there a point where there's a conversation around revenue? The Business Council of Alberta last week put out a study saying once we cleaned up the spending side of things and that that needs to be the first priority, that we need to circle back and have a conversation around revenues, that we don't have a reliable revenue system in Alberta, that we have both the spending and a revenue problem, they argue. So is that the case? What does Janice McKinnon make of that? Uh, she'll join us coming up after 10 o'clock, so we'll talk about those two challenges and what we should expect in this budget. I mean, obviously, there's a focus right now on dealing with the pandemic. There's a focus right now on trying to get the economy rolling again. But at the same time, you know, we're racking up a lot of debt in the process. And so we, we can't be blind to that either. So we'll talk about that uh, coming up after 10 o'clock. Just to let you know as well, uh, we are going to hear from Alberta Finance Minister Travis Taves on Friday morning. So the budget comes down tomorrow afternoon. So we'll talk to the Finance Minister on Friday in terms of, uh, you know, the decisions they made with regard to this budget, how big that deficit is, what the plan is going forward. If there's one bright spot on the horizon for the Alberta government, there seems to be a lot of bullishness at the moment regarding oil prices and, and even talk potentially of oil hitting triple digits once again. Something maybe a lot of people thought would never happen again. 
it's not to say that it's it's a lock. I don't know that the Alberta government should go into this budget tomorrow uh, with a forecast of $100 a barrel oil. But at least in the short term, that could really boost Alberta's fortunes, couldn't it? So we'll see what kind of anticipation the Alberta government's uh, entertaining with regard to future oil prices and the impact that has on the budget. But again, when you get back to that revenue question, part of it is, should we continue to rely on that? We do have, a, a, an, and have had for a long time, a, an awful lot of reliance on, on energy revenues. And those are very cyclical, as we've seen. So do we need to get away from, from relying on those revenues? Do we put those, when they're flowing in, do we put those into savings? Do we beef up the Heritage Savings Trust Fund? Do we keep doing what we're doing? So anyway, we'll get into all of that coming up after 10 o'clock this morning. After 10.30 today, as mentioned, we'll talk about the Trudeau-Biden uh, summit yesterday, the uh, virtual summit. Uh, but the first uh, for this new president. And, and so it seems as though he's made a priority of recognizing Canada as, as a key ally. Okay, that's good. But what does that actually mean in practice? I think we've got some legitimate beefs. And are we going to see any movement on those? I mean, I, I think the door's closed on, on Keystone, so that's off the table. But what about the Buy America stuff? What about on vaccines? So are we making any headway on any of these issues? If not, then okay, I guess it's nice that the two are, are friendly, but what does it actually mean to Canadians? We'll talk about that after 1030. I'll uh, we'll get some open line time coming up at 11 this morning, so some time for your calls. Uh, at 1130, we're going to hear from the uh, commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, and uh, we'll find out where things are at with the AJHL. They're looking to resume the season in uh, early March. I think players are actually now into uh, quarantine, as a matter of fact, uh, getting set for the season. So they're, they're going to sort of do a cohort approach in terms of matching up teams and there is going to be weekly testing of players and, and all of that. So they're, they're going to try to finish a, a season here and they'll get some help via this new 50, 50 lottery that was announced this week. Cause obviously these teams count on having fans in the stands. That's not an option. Unfortunately at the moment, hopefully soon, maybe, but for now, not an option. So we'll talk about uh, this uh, lottery and the impact it's going to have on junior hockey in Alberta. So that's coming up later as well. Plenty to get to today. Your calls as well. Rob Breckenridge with you here on 770 CHQR. Welcome back. By the way, Alberta Health Services uh, now reporting uh, over 8,000, uh, 8,500. Uh, in fact, uh, vaccine appointments have now been booked. So today is the day, of course, it opens up to those born in 1946 or earlier. Been some issues with the website and the phone number earlier today, but uh, people are still getting through. So now over 8,500 appointments booked. And uh, we also just got a, a notice at 2.30 this afternoon. Health Minister Tyler Shandro is going to be providing an update on the vaccine rollout. And uh, part of that that uh, press conference will be the uh, CEO of the Alberta Pharmacists Association. So she'll be on hand for the announcement. So it sounds as though we, we've heard them talk about it before, maybe getting pharmacies more involved in, in the vaccine rollout, which makes sense. So we'll learn a little bit more this afternoon. All right. Yesterday, we had uh, the, the first official meeting uh, with the new U.S. president and another world leader, uh, Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, had a, a virtual meeting, uh, I suppose, under normal circumstances. It probably would have been in person. Uh, so I guess it's encouraging that uh, the new U.S. president wants to talk to, wants to meet with Canada's prime minister, seems to uh, value the relationship between the two countries. But what does that actually mean in practice? You know, certainly under the previous president, we had uh, the reopening of NAFTA. We had uh, tariffs imposed. 
and, and other trade irritants and, you know, issues certainly between the relationship. How much have things changed, though? You know, certainly when it comes to things like Buy American, there's still very much a protectionist streak that exists in, in the White House. So where can Canada make some headway? What are our priorities? What are their priorities? Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about the uh, meeting yesterday and uh, this relationship going forward. Very pleased to welcome the program here this morning, uh, Dr. Donald uh, Abelson who's director of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government, Stephen K. Hudson Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations and a professor in the Department of Political Science, St. Francis Xavier University. Uh, professor Abelson, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Rob. Great to be with you. Okay, so I guess, you know, there's some significance in, in the U U.S. president advertising the fact that Canada is an important ally, one of the first people he turns to to, uh, you know, have this kind of a, a meeting with. But beyond that, what stood out as significant to you about this yesterday? Well, I think there was a recognition on, on the part of both leaders, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and President Biden, that it was necessary to you know hit the reset button on the Canada-U.S. relationship. And as you pointed out in your introductory remarks, there have been some tumultuous times over the past four years. There have been a number of irritants uh, between uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and former President Donald Trump. And I think both leaders now recognize the importance of moving forward. They recognize how critical it is to get the pandemic under control so that they can reopen the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, they understand how important it is to ignite economic recovery and to deal with climate change and a host of other issues that they laid out in their more than two-hour discussion yesterday. But what's important, I think, really is to focus on two things. Uh, first, that they have the political will uh, to move forward, and, and you don't always see that between two leaders, but given the nature mm -hmm. of this very important relationship, it, it is absolutely necessary. And, and secondly, that what Joe Biden brings to the table is a certain amount of certainty. Uh, leaders hate uncertainty. They, they want to make sure they know who they're dealing with. They want predictability. With Donald Trump, it was predictably unpredictable. With Joe Biden, we know that Justin Trudeau might not always be able to get his, own, uh, get his way. We've seen that happen in the last couple of weeks. Um, but clearly, they'll be able to engage in, in a very diplomatic, cordial, and civil discussion around many policy issues. So I think those two facts are, are very important as we look to the future of the Candius relationship. Well, and, and we hope for better. I mean, you know, right out of the gate, we had the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, right. which didn't feel like, you know, things were going in the right direction. Obviously, uh, you know, Joe Biden and his, his party have uh, certain views on, on that project, but it was an inauspicious start, I suppose, to this new relationship. Where do you see us able to make some headway then? Well, I think we're, we're certainly going to be able to make some headway uh, on, on the trade front. I think there'll be a recognition on the part of the Biden administration that Canada uh, should not be excluded uh, from the Buy American initiative, uh, that there should be a procurement policy in place that will at least allow us in the door. I think there's an opportunity to make some headway. Certainly, I think we'll be able to make some headway uh, in terms of climate change, our support for the Paris Climate Accord, we know that on the first day, uh, Joe Biden signed an executive order uh, to get the United States back back on board with respect to climate change. I do think there are opportunities in the energy sector. Uh, you're absolutely right. It was a great disappointment uh, that Joe Biden uh, decided to cancel uh, Keystone XL and, and not authorize a permit. I don't think we should have been entirely surprised by that, mm -hmm. uh, in large part because he was with uh, Barack Obama for eight years as his vice president. 
and that administration was not prepared to move forward. And of course, as, as you, you point out, uh, Joe Biden has been pulled in a particular direction by the progressive wing of his own party. But I think there is opportunity uh, to increase energy capacity with the United States. Over 40% of all of their oil, oil is already imported uh, from Canada. I think there's additional capacity that they can take advantage of. And I think in terms of dealing with multilateral institutions, NORAD, NATO, the United Nations, I think we're going to see a president who is far more willing to embrace those institutions and to align more with you know, some of the values that, that Canada has embraced uh, over several decades. So I think there's a lot of room. And, of course, what came up yesterday during the discussion was uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's um, request to Joe Biden that he put pressure on China to release the two Michaels who have now been held uh, for over 800 days. So I think there are a lot of different avenues that Canada can explore, uh, both with the Biden administration and also, of course, working with our own departments and agencies and how they try to navigate their way uh, through the Washington policymaking community. Yeah, certainly the situation with China and the two Michaels in particular, I think that would be a big one if, you know, we're to get some some meaningful U.S. support behind the effort to, to get those two released. That that would be something. I, I do wonder, and it gets back to, to kind of the issue of protectionism, but also as it applies right. to the pandemic. There's a, a real effort to, to get that border reopen. It's going to stay closed through March. Yeah. Uh, that depends on the pandemic improving in both countries. Vaccines would go a long way. There is still that executive order that remains in effect signed by the previous president uh, that vaccines manufactured in the U.S. cannot go outside of the United States. Canada cannot purchase from the Pfizer plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which right. is not far from the Canadian border. Do you think that's a, an area where maybe as, as an argument for, you know, the concerted Canada-U.S. approach to, to get things under control, get the border reopened, that we could get I, I, some movement on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's certainly on the table. It was an issue that was discussed yesterday. Uh, you know, of course, you know, Joe, Joe Biden's primary responsibility is to safeguard the, the well-being of uh, Americans, and not Canadians. But having said that, I think there's an opportunity uh, for discussion. Of course, there are no guarantees but I think, you know, at the core of this relationship, you'll now have two leaders who fundamentally will get along, who respect each other, who can set a more positive tone for the relationship. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, both countries want to see the border reopen, but only under conditions where the safety of Americans and Canadians can be uh, guaranteed or at least uh, protected as much as possible. So we want to see that. The Americans want to see that. There are a number of American states that rely very heavily on Canadian tourism, and we rely on, on you know, millions of Americans crossing the border every year into Canada. So will Joe Biden be willing to, to revoke that executive order, amend it, do something for Canada? I think there's a possibility, but you know, remember the promise he made very early on that you know, 100 million Americans would be vaccinated right. within the first 100 days. So he has his priorities, but if he has an opportunity... I think to to you know cut Canada into the equation, I, I think there'd be a political political willingness to do that, uh, so long as it doesn't cost him too much politically at home. That's something we're we'll have to wait and see unfold. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, uh, all presidents, all prime ministers have their domestic issues, their domestic right. priorities, domestic politics they got to deal with. You know, we think of 
Mulroney and Reagan is sort of setting the bar for a real tight relationship between a president and a prime minister and, you know, how that can manifest itself in, in policy or in compromise. Right. You know, how important is it, that, that working relationship in, in the grand scheme of things? It's incredibly important. And, and you're right to point out the relationship between Prime Minister Mulroney and President Reagan and, of course, uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush. And it's not as if you know they always agreed on every conceivable policy issue. Prime Minister Mulroney took a very strong stance against the Strategic Defense Initiative that was really right. one of the pillars of the Reagan administration. He disagreed uh, with Ronald Reagan's attempt to kind of you know pull back from the possibility of negotiate, negotiating an acid rain agreement. That didn't occur until his successor, President Bush, came into office. But what that does, by having a strong personal bond, by having a strong professional relationship, it gives Canada an opportunity to deal with uh, not only the most powerful person in in the free world, but it it gives us unparalleled access uh, to the world community. It gives us a certain cachet that we, we can't afford to compromise. It doesn't mean that we have to abide by or align ourselves with every American policy objective and priority. But having that close relationship, having the ability for a prime minister to call the White House and to be able to get through to the president and to have a, you know, a civil diplomatic discussion is extremely important. So that working relationship is critical, something that we didn't really see over the past four years, in large part because there were a number of occasions when uh, President Trump decided to engage in ad hominem attacks against our prime minister. Uh, instead of sitting down and, and, and dealing with issues rationally and, and thoughtfully. With Joe Biden, you're going to have someone, or at least the prime minister is going to have someone, who he can you know, put all the cards on the table, see what progress can be made. And Biden's initial instinct really is to try and find common ground. It's to negotiate. That was not the approach that Donald Trump embraced. So I am hopeful that despite policy differences that will in, invariably occur over the next few years, that the two leaders will be able to manage this relationship in a very special and meaningful way. Well, we shall see. Uh, Professor Abelson, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. It's my pleasure. You take care. All right, you as well. Donald Abelson is professor in the Department of Political Science, St. Francis Xavier University, Stephen K. Hudson, Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations, and Director of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government. So, look, I don't know that anything earth-shattering came out of that meeting yesterday. Ultimately, the question for Justin Trudeau is, what did you achieve? What, what did you get, right? What compromise did you get? What kind of a breakthrough did we get on, on any issues of importance? So I, I didn't see that. And yeah, okay, fine, fair enough. On climate change, the two are very much aligned on the same page, great. What does that mean? In, in practice, it doesn't really mean much because we already knew that this prime minister, his government, that that was a priority for them. That doesn't change. Their policies aren't changing. If the Americans are going to be more in in alignment with that approach, then okay, but that doesn't affect us here. So to me, I look at the, the three. To me, the big three are Keystone, Buy American, and Vaccines. Did you get any movement on Keystone XL? Probably not. Okay, strike one. By American, are we getting any kind of compromise there? Possibly. Possibly. So maybe not a strike there. And what about on vaccines? You know, look, we backed ourselves into a situation where we almost need to be bailed out a little bit. 
on the vaccine front. And the U.S. is going to be in a pretty enviable position fairly soon, especially now that they're on the verge of approving the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It would be uh, rather charitable, I suppose, for Joe Biden to, to toss a few our way. And, you know, look, maybe he cares about Justin Trudeau's political fortunes. If he sees Justin Trudeau as somebody he can work with on certain issues, then maybe he, he throws him a bone, does him a favor on, on some of these issues. So we'll see. And if at the end of the day they're, they're just buddies and nothing really changes, well, ultimately, I don't think Canadians are going to care all that much. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Sour of the Program. Rob Breckenridge uh, filling in today and uh, the remainder of this week through next week as well. We've still got a lot to get to uh, here this morning. We'll talk about Canada-U.S. relations coming up after 1030 and what came out of that Trudeau-Biden uh, summit or virtual summit yesterday. Got some time for your calls coming up as well, 403-974-8255. So a lot of ground still to cover here on the program. As you heard during the news, uh, the Premier says don't expect any big changes in tomorrow's budget. The Premier's talked of a, a fiscal reckoning, but it ain't coming tomorrow, he says, that there's going to be a real focus on dealing with the pandemic, diversifying the economy, really kickstarting the economy. So we're probably facing a deficit uh, of around $14 billion, which is big. It's down from last uh, November, mind you. Uh, like I said earlier, there, there's been you know some good news, at least in terms of oil prices, yeah. or at least in terms of the impact oil prices would have on the Alberta budget. I mean, high oil prices have other effects, too. But uh, that, that's certainly something that is going to have an impact on the Alberta government's uh, financial situation. Now, certainly there, there is going to be some big changes coming to, to how Alberta spends money, how much money Alberta spends. And a lot of that comes out of the Blue Ribbon panel that was led by our next guest. Is there a conversation to be had on the revenue side as well? Now, the premier is pretty clear. There's no tax increases uh, coming in this budget tomorrow. But does there need to be a conversation down the road? And, and there's been some hints maybe that at some point uh, the revenue mix in Alberta is going to be reviewed. So the idea of potentially, uh, for example, a sales tax down the road, it's a possibility, I guess. So where, where does the, the revenue side of things need to factor in here? Well, joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this morning, Janice McKinnon, of course, uh, former finance minister for the province of Saskatchewan, led that blue ribbon panel here in Alberta, as mentioned, also a fellow with the School of Public Policy. Uh, Professor McKinnon, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, great to be on the program. Uh, so first of all, your thoughts on, uh, you know, the, the situation Alberta finds itself in with regard to tomorrow's budget, some comments from the Premier about what to expect. Um, what are your thoughts, first of all? Well, yeah, I think those are the right priorities, certainly dealing with the pandemic and ensuring that the healthcare dollars are there to address the pandemic and some after effects of the pandemic, like wait times. And for sure, the priority needs to be getting people back to work and getting the economy moving. So the right priorities for sure at this point in time. So where, where does balancing the budget factor in as a priority now or in, over the next two or three years? Oh, I think that's a, a long-term prospect. And, and mm -hmm. every government in Canada is going to face the discussion that's occurring now in Alberta. Uh, we have to get through the pandemic. We have to get the economy going so that people are back to work so the revenue side of, of the government's books uh, increases, you get revenue back, and then you start looking at the tax side 
and looking in the very long term about how to balance the budget. And it'd be far too premature for any government to go down that road at this particular point in time. We've had moments in, in, in our history in Alberta where, you know, energy revenues, royalties uh, have come to the rescue, essentially. And, and, and look, it's possible there are some forecasting $100 a barrel once again. That, that that could make a big difference on Alberta's bottom line, but sort of speaks to this whole broader conversation that doesn't make sense to continue to rely on that revenue as much as we do. Where, where do you come down on that question? Well, I think, yeah, I think I, I find the argument convincing but frustrating at the same time. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Alberta has to diversify its revenue sources uh, and make changes. But it's very easy to say, well, let's have a sales tax. But the people who say that just make the theoretical argument. They don't make the practical argument about the obstacles. So Jason Kenney doesn't support a sales tax. Rachel Notley doesn't support a sales tax. Who's who impose this sales tax? And there's good reason, because the problem in Alberta is you have to have a referendum to get approval for a sales tax. And our people, first step is persuading Albertans that they have to pay more. Uh, They will in Alberta and elsewhere in Canada, but that's a big task in itself. And then persuading them that the sales tax is the answer is a huge task. And sometimes I get frustrated because commentators say, well, all you need is leadership. I think what they're really saying is ignore the referendum or set it aside. But if you look at what happened in British Columbia, um, when a government there just kind of didn't think about public opinion and imposed a a sales tax change, the public response was so overwhelmingly negative that they had to reverse course. So, sure, what I'd like to say to the people, though, who say sales tax all the time, great, tell the government how to get there. That's the problem. It's not, is it a good idea? It's how, with all the obstacles here, do you get there? The second point uh, I'd like to make is the fact that Alberta doesn't have a, a sales tax, health care premiums, has low tax rates, is, has to change. But it's a big opportunity. Unlike a lot of other provinces, you have tax room. You can increase taxes without hurting your competitive position. But do it properly. Think of all your choices. Think of all the things that you want to achieve through increasing taxes, you know, revenue growth, uh, jobs, uh, economy, etc. Do it carefully and properly. Just don't rush into it by trying to do a sales tax right now and failing. So that's, that's the reaction I have. Sure, good arguments about a sales tax, but please tell the government how to get there because as a po- former politician, I don't see an easy path through the referendum. Well, no, I mean, you're right. The referendum is not an easy path, and it would be politically um, problematic, I suspect, to just repeal that legislation and say a referendum is no longer necessary. So either way, you're right. There's some big obstacles. In, in terms of, you know, from, from an economist's perspective, um, you know, certainly if we were designing a tax mix from scratch and looking at ways to, to, to impose taxes, which taxes we would prefer to rely upon, I mean, isn't it true, though, that when it comes to a sales tax, that it is less damaging to the economy, that is more efficient than, than say, income taxes? Oh, well, yeah, for sure. Those arguments, as I say, those arguments are easy to make, but it's, you're going in circles when you just keep saying do it. 
Well, how do you do it? If you were, if you were Rachel Notley or, or Jason Kenney, how would you get through that, that hoop of the referendum? And that's, that's the problem. But also, it's not the only tax. And that's why you need a panel and they, you need broad terms of reference. Look at everything. Look at all the choices and educate the public to the fact that something's got to change here. You're going to have to pay more. And here's the choices. And there's no perfect choice. And hopefully build the support for the best tax regime. But you don't do that overnight. And you don't do it during a pandemic when people are preoccupied by their health and their jobs and their businesses. Yeah, I don't think anyone's arguing we should rock the boat at the moment. Uh, nothing. We, we certainly don't want anything to get in the way of of economic recovery, and and you know this this potentially could. So I, I think everyone's pretty much on on the same page there. It's interesting with regard to the referendum question, and I'm not sure what the law says about how such a referendum would be worded. Presumably, it's a straight up yes or no question. But I, I think the idea of a tax shift reducing income taxes or reducing corporate taxes and bringing in a sales tax would be an easier sell than just tacking on a sales tax to to our status quo but i don't know i mean politically could could you try to ask the question that way well i mean this is uh, tax policy is really complicated and what mm-hmm. i really fear is that some of these things thrown out quickly you do tax policy on the back of an envelope and then you 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 take your opportunity to make changes and you don't make the right changes and that is a really problematic situation so that's why you need a panel and you need to look at all the choices and all the options and you need to assess can you persuade people to accept the sales tax under these conditions? And if you can't, then what are you going to do? You're not going to do a Gordon Campbell who imposed the tax and then uh, had to reverse himself and actually left politics. So right. it's, it's complicated, yeah. So the first task, and I'm not sure if, if you did a poll that Albertans are there. Do you need higher taxes in Alberta? Yeah, you do. And other parts of Canada too, by the way. But start there and do it when people's attention is not on more immediate things like their health, their jobs, their businesses. And when the government can focus entirely on this huge task, it's a huge change. You only get to do it every so often. You don't get to do this, you know, every three or four years. Well, do we need to tackle the spending side first? You know, and that's certainly what your panel looked at, the way Alberta spends money, how much we spend money, because, yeah, we spend a lot and we tax very little, and that, that's, that's problematic. But do we need to start with the, the spending first? Well, I think the government did start with the spending side, and, but with the pandemic and the uh, downturn in the economy, they have to retreat from that because they have to spend money on health and they have to get the economy moving. But they have made some progress on that, and, you know, they can continue. For example, the spending in healthcare, it's changing the system to, to a different system that exists in other provinces, you know, with a less focus on the most expensive parts of the system and better health. But that's long term. But, yeah, I think that they have to continue watching the spending. But I think that they have to also do what they've said they're going to do down the road when the, the time is right The government's focused on other things besides the pandemic and getting the economy going. And the public, you know, the public, the pandemic is behind us. The economy's uh, 
recovering, so people aren't just worried about their jobs, then it's the time to have that really big discussion about taxes. And it's a huge discussion. And uh, as I say, it's an opportunity because many other provinces in Canada just can't even afford to increase taxes because it's going to be so detrimental to the economy. Alberta has room. Use the room wisely. Yeah, and look, I mean, as you say, there, there are a lot of political pitfalls in that conversation. I, I think when it comes to overhauling spending and, and really f- reforming spending, reducing spending, you know, that, that certainly has a, a political component to it as well. Did you find as a politician that it, is, it, is it easier to, to cut spending than it is to raise taxes? How, how do they compare in terms of political backlash? Well, if you look at the history of Canada, when the deficits become a problem, the governments increase taxes first. Uh, so if you look at uh, Ottawa in the 80s and 90s, they, they went to the spending side because it was a crisis and because there was no tax room left. They couldn't. Paul Martin said it. We can't. There's no other taxes we can increase. So right. most governments go to the tax side because it's easier to increase people's taxes than to to cut programs that affect them. Most governments do that. Um, They haven't, in Alberta, that hasn't been the case so far with this government. Um, They're they're doing the spending side first, and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens after the pandemic and the economy recovers. Uh, do, Do they go back to that side, or is the gap narrowed? Because they have... Uh, leveled off a lot of uh, spending already is a gap between other provinces narrowed by them. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens uh, tomorrow and uh, and in the months ahead. Uh, Janice McKinnon, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us here yeah. today. Great to talk to you. Likewise. All the best. Uh, Janice McKinnon, former finance minister in the province of Saskatchewan, is uh, now a fellow with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and, of course, headed up the Alberta government's Blue Ribbon Panel, the uh, McKinnon Report, as we now refer to it as. Uh, that that had a lot of really interesting proposals in terms of how Alberta can change the way it spends money, how we essentially do government, really, for for lack of a better term, and and ultimately be more efficient, spend less. Why is it that we spend so much more per capita than other provinces? So is is that sufficient when it comes to dealing with the problem? Maybe. But I think there's still the other elephant in the room when it comes to royalties, energy revenues. Because when has an Alberta government ever balanced the budget without oil revenues? Well, maybe that's maybe it's fair. You know, we have them; they're here. Why not make use of them? But it's something to consider. If we're okay with continuing to have that go into revenue, go into to funding the budget, then fair enough. If we want to take those royalties out of the mix and rely less on them, put them into savings. Then what? Anyway. 403-974-8255 is uh, the number here. Some time for your calls when we come back. Stay with us. By the way, as mentioned, we'll have some open line time coming up after 11 o'clock. So we'll have more time for your calls then, too. But let's go to the phones in the meantime and uh, say good morning to Jeff. Jeff, welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, just a comment on, on taxes. I think government's first priority should be to cut spending because taxes are the most draining on the economy. And uh, just a quick comment we had a de facto sales tax under Notley because she took the carbon tax and put it into general revenues and the other point i want to make is that if you have a tax you have to earn the money first to pay that and pay income tax on that money so uh, a six percent sales tax you have to go out and earn ten percent to pay that tax i don't think people understand 
just how draining, how hard tax increases are on a family's ability to uh, pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are fair points, Jeff. Appreciate the call. By the way, just to clarify, I mean, the, the Notley carbon tax, they did spend that money, but it didn't just go into general revenues. It, it went into a special kind of pot to, to spend on environmental initiatives, et cetera, which maybe is, is uh, somewhat of a meaningless distinction, but just to be clear about that. Um, yeah, look, I mean, you know, taxes are, are, are draining, right? So the question is, how high do we go? And, and what form of tax? It's interesting to me that it's probably easier politically to simply increase the income tax rate than it is to bring in a sales tax. But why is one more popular than the other or less controversial than the other? Again, I think you got to fall back on the evidence. Which taxes are, are less damaging to the economy? Let's go with those then. But that's not how we do it. So that, that to me, I, I find interesting. Okay, like I said, more time for your calls later. When we come back, we'll talk Canada-U.S. relations, what came out of this Trudeau-Biden meeting yesterday, what we can expect, if anything, uh, from the fact that the two seem to get along well or on the same page on a lot of issues. Rob Breckenridge with you here on 770 CHQR. By the way, and, and just regarding the uh, vaccine uh, appointment booking process, so you can go to the web, website, ahs.ca uh, slash COVID vaccine, or you can call 811. But be very careful to dial 811 and not 911. Because apparently that's been happening today. I don't know. Either people are misdialing or maybe people just feel like this is important. I should call 911. Do not call 911. The Edmonton Police Service just put out a, a statement in the last bit here saying they've received almost 100 calls to 911 from people looking to book vaccine appointments. Do not call that number. Do not deliberately call that number. Uh, do your best to avoid accidentally calling that number. So 811 is the number for Alberta Health Link. All right. I uh, want to uh, turn our attention to uh, the... Um, question of of hockey and uh, junior hockey in particular, because there was a lot of uncertainty as to what was going to happen with junior hockey, whether there would be an opportunity uh, for these athletes to to have some semblance of a season, because things have been on hold for the last few months. Uh, The Western Hockey League uh, put together a plan. It's five Alberta-based teams will be playing each other uh, beginning this weekend. And we just recently uh, got details from the Alberta Junior Hockey League about their plans to resume play starting in March. Now, those efforts got a boost this week, an announcement uh, from the uh, Alberta government in partnership with the leagues to launch a new 50-50 lottery in support of junior hockey. Because obviously there are no fans in the stands for these games. There are other costs they're, they're having to, to take on, like testing, for example, for players. So uh, this will certainly help. Joining us uh, to talk a bit more about uh, where things stand now with the the season, what the plans are going forward here, and uh, where this 50-50 is going to fit in. Uh, fit in. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning. Uh, Ryan Bartoshek is commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League. Uh, Ryan, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good morning. Thanks, Rob. All right, so I understand uh, plans are already underway to get going again. Players, I, I think, are now quarantining. Is, is that where things are at? Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that is correct. We're we're just wrapping up our initial isolation phase, which which took place in in players' existing residence, and uh, now we start the process of returning safely to our communities, um, starting with initial an initial test. 
today actually uh, and then another seven days and another test before we get on the ice so it's been it's been a quite the process for us yeah. and um, there was a pathway to return and, and luckily we were able to to get to that point and develop relationships with the Alberta government and um, Alberta Health and obviously a commitment from all of, all, all of our teams to move forward here and, and fortunate to, to get to that point. And now we have a responsibility to ensure that we're, we're going beyond the guidelines and, and our responsibility to make sure everyone's safe here. Right. So as you say, they, they involved a lot of close work with uh, Alberta Health Services, right, in terms of coming up with, with a plan, getting that plan approved. Correct. Yeah, and and with things changing on a day to day basis, we were fortunate to you know rely on our relationships and uh, the events that happen throughout the province, whether that's the NHL bubble, the World Juniors, obviously with the Western League uh, getting their plan approved, we could we could rely on some experience there, and uh, we're for, again fortunate to, to have our plan approved and and move forward. What happened with the Canmore Eagles, though? The Canmore Eagles have opted out of this return-to-play plan. I don't know if there were issues with, with the town of Canmore specifically, but what can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, there was uh, obviously our, our return-to-play protocols were, were very significant, and, um, you know, the strength of our league is, is communities, and, you know, we rely on our communities and, and our facilities and our billets to, to embrace our programs, and, you know, given the challenges there, uh, unfortunately, they couldn't meet the return to play protocols uh, and chose had the opportunity to to opt out for the remainder of the season. So, you know, respect that decision from their organization um, and we'll move forward here with our remaining teams for the rest of the season. All right. And so the the plan going forward, so there's going to be sort of a a cohort approach, right? When it comes to, to grouping teams and having games and then having some separation in between games, how's that going to work? Yeah, correct. We've, we've committed to three team cohorts and, and we'll be in with, within those cohorts for, for a minimum of 30 days. So um, X team, will see the same two teams over, over that month. uh, And we're committed to playing only on Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. So, um, Given that schedule and, and our testing strategy, uh, we've laid it out to, to get to this point to have some competition. Well, and yeah, let's talk about the competition side. So there's an opportunity to to have, I guess, what's essentially a season. But the the plan as it stands now doesn't doesn't include a, a, a playoffs. Doesn't include a, a championship. So where, where are things at with that? Yeah, correct. Not not at this time right now. Um, our focus has been on returning to our communities and, and getting into some form of training camp and, and then getting into competition. So um, right now that's the focus as far as getting to that point where we can play games and uh, we're committed to playing through through the end of May. And uh, right now those are the plans. So uh, given the environment, uh, that's the focus of, of at least getting to a point of competition. And um, if there's an opportunity down the road to, to adjust and change things, um, we can definitely look at those options too. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the uh, announcement this week. And and so I, I would imagine, you know, given all the challenges involved in in returning to play and and the testing and the other protocols and no fans in the stands, there's some real financial challenges for your league. So how did this fifty uh, fifty plan come together? Yeah, definitely. And and again, the strength of our league and and the Western League are are our communities and our reliance on local sponsorship and billets and ticket sales and, and our ability to embrace our communities. Uh, and without those 
yeah, it's it's a financial struggle for for our leagues and our individual teams with without those avenues available to us. And um, again, I think the one benefit of of this has been the relationships we've been able to build. So you know, throughout this process, we've been able to work with the Western Hockey League. We've been able to get support from all of our community mayors, our MLAs in our communities, and and ultimately the Alberta government. So. With a collaborative approach among all of those groups, we were able to get to the point of of this this initiative uh, in order to try and generate some funds for our league. So, you know, again, credit to to those groups for for recognizing how we operate and really the dire state that we are in without ticket sales and local sponsorships. So, um, we're excited about it. Uh, we're proud that we've gotten to this point and we're able to work directly here with the Alberta government and um, hopeful that now we can rely on on our communities and the province of Alberta to, to support this initiative. So I understand it's going to run each weekend in March. Is it is it only going to run through March? I, I would imagine there's an end date here. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're looking at just through, through the months and, um, you know, to generate some excitement for for our league and uh, again communities across the province with with their support and um it uh it'll be exciting just to to work again here with the western hockey league closely and and the alberta government to launch the initiative so yeah it's it's an opportunity as you say for you know communities for for folks to support these teams there's not the opportunity necessarily to buy that ticket and be in the stands but this is another way to to provide support then right yeah yeah and and you know we went down the road of of the collaborative nature with all of our 15 teams and uh, the Western Hockey League's five teams. So um, the approach that, hey, you're supporting junior hockey across this province. And, um, you know, that's that's an integral part of our communities. And again, looking for, for that community support just in a different fashion now. What does this all mean to, to the athletes? Because I know, you know, some, some are about to age out and this is kind of their last opportunity to play. And there were those who are hoping to move on to, you know, maybe a, a scholarship opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, you know, with, without a season, there, there's a lot of those missed opportunities. So what does this now allow for then? For, yeah, for we, were, we were fortunate enough earlier on in the year. I think we got about 82 games in. Um, and within that time period, we had multiple players on the NHL Central Scouting watch list and multiple players connected to school. So um, yeah. just that initial exposure uh, was a benefit to, to starting early on this year. And unfortunately, we couldn't continue. But given the pathway we had here to continue, that's truly what it's about. And uh, I think that's the one common feature when I get asked, you know, wh- why why are we doing this? Why are we putting so much work in? Why are we going through all these hoops and, and restrictions and guidelines in order to play and really the simple answer is our athletes and to provide them with exposure here for for three months is is really the ultimate goal these players and these families have put so much into the game to to get to this point um anything we can do to to allow them to continue to develop um and get an ncaa scholarship and get on the nhl's radar that's that's why we're doing it so it's really significant for us to to provide this opportunity for our athletes and uh ultimately the reason why we're doing this 
And I just wonder too, I mean, you know, given all, all the planning that's gone into this return to play and, you know, all the uncertainty about what lies ahead, how much thought have you guys been able to, to put toward next season? Or, you know, do, do you wait for now before you start making decisions about next season? Yeah, I mean, you're continuously monitoring um, the existing situation and, and how that impacts next season. And um, the reality is you're always looking towards next year, whether that's from a recruitment perspective, whether that's from a league structure perspective, um, you know, specific events we're trying to plan in that off season just to um, essentially build the AJHL brand and, and encourage athletes to, to come play at our level. So um, at a certain point, yeah, the, the seasons always merge in a, in a typical year, maybe this year a little bit differently, but um, to, to answer your question, yeah, you're, you're always thinking about next year and, and what that looks like. And, um, you know, we're coming up to, to the one year point where we unfortunately had to lose last season and right. it's, um, it's the constant battle of what will it look like. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the challenge we face, but, you know, given our experience here over, over the last year, I guess it is, you, you just continue to lean on relationships and, um, be in constant communication to ensure that, uh, there's a pathway. Well, more details on the 50-50, more details on the schedule and everything else, ajhl.ca. Ryan, all the best uh, with the next few weeks, and uh, let's hope things are continuing to look up. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. All right, you as well. Thanks again. Uh, Ryan Bartoszek, he's the uh, commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, so they're getting set to start play in March. Players going through the uh, the quarantine process. There's going to be ongoing testing. They're going to sort of have the cohort approach when it comes to to matching up teams. And yeah, hopefully, you know they'll be able to get through these uh, March, April, May months. And yeah, look who knows. I mean, you know, if you want to be really optimistic, maybe they'll be in a position uh, to have playoffs at that point, or or to have something uh, along those lines. Maybe even to start putting some fans in buildings. Wouldn't that be great? So. Here's hoping. Again, AJHL.ca. So this 50-50, the jackpots for junior hockey uh, in, part to, in um, conjunction with REMAX is uh, set to kick off. So each weekend through March, it's a real opportunity to support junior hockey there. All right, welcome to the, uh, this hour of the program. Rob Reichenridge uh, sitting in today and uh, the rest of this week and through next week here on 770 CHQR. And then after that, well, I, I don't know. Some time for your phone calls here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We're going to talk some hockey coming up after 1130. We'll hear from the commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, talk about the plans to get their season going again, and some support from the province in terms of uh, a green light for a new 50-50 lottery. It's going to benefit uh, both the WHL teams in Alberta, and I think they get underway this weekend, I believe, those five teams, and then uh, to the AJHL as well. They'll get going next month. So we'll talk about that coming up after 11.30. Like I say, we've got some time for your phone calls here, some open line time, and uh, let's get back to the phones, shall we? This is Jim. Jim, go ahead. So obviously the person who put together this program for the COVID vaccine probably got his credentials by being able to swipe his iPad on to unlock it. I've been trying this thing all morning, and I'll tell you, why would you have to make everybody answer all of the COVID questions when you're booking appointments into April? Why wouldn't they have that set up that two weeks prior to your appointment that you would do the COVID test? And they'll probably still make you do the COVID test then. Like mm-hmm. or the, 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 the thing of where they talk about whether or not you've been in contact with anybody in 14 days and all that kind of thing. It's, just, it's absolutely brutal. Why didn't they break it down to maybe quarterly, like January 
uh, February, March, and then and go from there. Like it's just it is a complete and utter nightmare. I'm just losing so much confidence in this government to be able to handle anything. They couldn't manage a Kool Aid stand. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the phone call. Um, look, I mean, some people have been able to get through, but obviously a lot of people are running into that. And I, I, yeah, Jim makes a good point. Why do you have to go through all the questions if your appointment is more than two weeks away? What relevance is it if you're having any symptoms today for you know what the situation is going to be whenever it is your appointment is in, into March or even into April? And again, yes, look, when you got a whole bunch of people trying to access a website, you got to be prepared for that. So some of this, I think, was predictable, and it, it does raise the question, what happens when we start to really roll out vaccines? Because we're going to have days uh, in, in the weeks and months ahead where a lot more people than this are trying to log on and make appointments. So let's figure this out. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. This is uh, Rick. Rick, go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Rob. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Uh, yeah, Rob, uh, just bear with me for one sec. I know your opinions on Donald Trump. Uh, I want to speak to your professor uh, talking about respect, respect between leaders. Uh, I don't know what it is about you guys' show on uh, these intellectuals that you've been uh, uh, inviting, uh, i.e. the one you had on yesterday, sorry, the one that uh, Angela had on yesterday and one that you had on this morning. First off, I'd like to say uh, I do not believe that President Trump engaged in attacks on uh, Justin Trudeau. I believe he responded to somebody slagging him in the media uh, and slagging him at the G7 co- uh, conference. Uh, respect, Rob, is earned. It, it's not just something that's given. And I'm, I'm just to make my point, if, if Justin wants to come out and slag Biden in our media let's see what kind of relationship they have thank you for for the call okay yeah rick appreciate the phone call look i mean you know you can point fingers in either direction i I just think the point is that under the previous president there wasn't a great relationship maybe under this one there will be so we'll we'll see but i think that that's just a simple observation of fact in terms of how bad it was or who's to blame then sure i mean you know certainly there's there's um Uh, differences of opinion there this is uh steve steve go ahead yeah uh i would take another stance on what the last caller said and the fact that it was kind of better we didn't have a good relationship between the two leaders because stephen harper literally came out and said on free trade we should be happy with whatever we get and Trudeau said, no, that's not how it works out. We're going to, we have our needs too, and we're not going to set them aside to, to take second place here. And then in the end, most people were happy with how it played out. But under Harper, we could have got hammered because he had this attitude that you can't go up against the big bad Americans. And Trudeau wasn't having it. And who's the person he put in charge? It was a woman, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember who uh, that was. Well, yeah, I mean, Christy Freeland. Yeah, Christy Freeland played a big role in that. Yeah, but we didn't back down, and that's because I think, in part, because we didn't have a good relationship. But, anyways, on free trade um, and the oil pipeline, I start my morning. I listen to Moncton, then Montreal, CHAD, um, 640 Talk Toronto, then I go to CKNW, and then I finish off by listening to Tony King at 9 o'clock. And the bottom line is, 
when they brought up the uh, the summit, nobody talked about pipelines. They couldn't give a flying Frenchman about this. This is not in their collective conscience because they're not an oil-producing um, province, and I get that. Hmm. But the bottom line is your last previous uh, expert or whatever you had on said we have a chance to uh, increase our energy supply to the U.S., but he didn't give any details. Do you, do you know what he meant by that, how that actually plays out? Well, I think there's a lot of ways that could play out. I, I don't know what he was referring to specifically. I know certainly Line 5 is an issue at the moment, uh, at least preserving what, what we have in, in terms of a status quo. Uh, I don't know, I, because I, I'm not aware that there's been any additional projects proposed. But Yeah, I mean, that would have been my first question is, okay, how? And then I would have flushed it out. Are you just saying that because it sounds good, or is there something behind what you just said? And I want to know what's behind what he said. If you ever get a chance to ask him again, uh, maybe he knows something the rest of us don't. Mm -hmm. That's a legitimate question I'm bringing up. You said we could increase it. Okay, tell us the pathway. Okay, thanks. Do you appreciate that? Uh, let's see. We got uh, Rick on the line here. Rick, go ahead. Hi, Rob. Thanks for the line. Hey, Rick. You bet. Um, literally in the middle of nowhere. So if I uh, don't have a good connection, just hang up on me. Like you, I've had COVID uh, back in January. I'm about mm -hmm. the same age as you. What my question is, and I apologize if you already chatted about it, but I wonder how I can explain to people, whether it's an airport or somewhere, that I've already had it, and am I okay? And if I was to get the booster, I know you talked about it before, do you get like a wristband or a piece of paper that you go to an airport, do you go somewhere? And I didn't even think about it up until this morning when I booked my eye exam. I barely got into my eye exam because they asked me if I had COVID. And yes, I do. And I will continue to test positive for COVID. So I'm just wondering if you've heard of anything of how we proceed when we've already had it or when we get our booster or vaccine. Like, if I, what if I was a pilot? I, I would right. never have a job because I'm going to continuously test positive. Just wanted to hear well, your thoughts. Yeah. First of all, there's there's a possibility that you can test positive with the PCR test for some weeks after, but it's it's not automatic. Uh, that for the most part, in fact, and yeah, and President Trump was actually an example of that because he had it, he recovered, and he he actually tested negative shortly after. So, I think most people do test negative. I don't know whether you would at this point. I don't know if I would still at this point uh, that it is possible. But for the most part, once you've you're finished shedding the virus, it's gone. It's it's not going to show up. But there is that risk. You're right. So I guess it depends on the the situation. Um, when it comes to travel, that could be an issue, I think, for people who've had it and recovered because there's the requirement to have a PCR test. It would be easy enough, I guess, to, to um, you know, if you've tested positive, that there's record of that, that, that you could maybe obtain that somehow. I, I, I don't know how that's going to work exactly. Well, I kept the um, uh, text message on my on yeah, my I, phone. I have that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't know if that's my ticket or my tattoo going into airports or getting eye exams or going to a dentist appointment like it, it's, it's kind of interesting i'm not really sure how they're going to be doing that but have you well but yeah when it comes anything? to those things like appointments like you know you're considered recovered and that's the the alberta health services uh protocol that that once you've you've confirmed positive been effective uh, infected after 10 days you're considered recovered so 
that it shouldn't be an issue for you, you know, to, as you say, go for an eye appointment, go for a dentist appointment, because you're, you're not, you're not sick anymore. Well, and, and I agree with that. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. a hard sell, you know, like she had to it talk is. to two managers prior to me yeah. getting, getting in. But the other thing is what I did maybe a week or two ago is I talked to um, a nurse on 811, fantastic lady and everything. And I asked her a few questions. There wasn't really any, you know, positive answers there. But I, I wondered if, if there was any, any type of thing we can show people. And I asked if I can go get a test again, just so I can have that, that text message that says negative. And she goes, right. it's, it's worthless because you're going to test positive. And I felt like a, I don't want to say a victim, but I felt like, holy crap. <laughs> Like, and she goes, it's a past tense thing. You had the mumps. You had the chicken pox. You had COVID. But that's me selling it to authoritarians at, at an airport or at a, at a junction or anywhere else. So sorry to keep on rambling, but just want to hear your thoughts. No, it's it's a valid question because, I mean, a lot of people have had it, and especially when it comes to international travel. In any situation where you say the requirement is that you have a negative PCR test, there, there's a possibility that somebody who has had it and recovered could still test positive. And so I think we've got to figure out how that's going to work. And I don't know if we're running into that now with any of the international travelers or if yeah, there's a way around that, like a doctor's note or, like you say, even showing the message that <laughs> I did indeed test positive. Here's, here's how I found out. So I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Story. And it's interesting you said that you may or may not test positive. So. I would like to be able to go into my little place in the industrial section in my town, go in, get a quick test, and see what happens. But I, 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 I want to be honest and don't want to go there and take somebody else's space. Right, because, you, yeah, it would be easy enough to be dishonest and, and go get a test. You could sure. also You could also be honest and pay out of pocket privately for a test, but, you know, th- those aren't cheap either, so. Yeah. Okay, I mean, well, it's I really kind of a moot point because for the most part, unless you're traveling internationally or unless your work requires it, you, you, don't, need, you don't need that proof of a negative test. Well, right? and that's the example I used. I know it was a stretch because yeah. I'm not a pilot, but if I was, I'd be kind yeah, of you'd, Well, screwed. that might be an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I'm sure there must be pilots out there who have had it at some point, just that the numbers would suggest that. So I wonder how they, they, they deal with that. I don't know. Long-haul truckers, pilots, yep. like whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, Rick, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. Appreciate the phone call. And then when it comes to vaccines, like people who have had the virus and recovered, where do they fall in the queue? And what should they do depending on, on the vaccine? Do they need a vaccine at all? Right, there's been some suggestion that maybe just a booster would be good for those who have who've had it and recovered. Maybe those who have had it and recovered, maybe let's wait a little bit longer. And maybe you need a booster for a certain variant, maybe. So I don't know. I don't know if we, we've addressed that and... Yeah, there's a lot of people who have a vested interest in that. All right, I want to get to this next story, and I think this is really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, electric vehicles and, you know, moving more in that direction for environmental reasons. But, you know, that kind of, of technology also has some environmental implications. And, you know, one essential ingredient, as it were, when it comes to not just electric cars, but all kinds of technology, is lithium. 
and you know the challenges posed when it comes to uh, accessing lithium, where we find it, uh, how we we uh, obtain it, and certainly there are environmental implications. Which brings us to our, our next guest, who's been looking into a much greener way, and frankly, probably a better way, when it comes to mining lithium. And so, uh, it's something that's that's getting a lot of attention, uh, as you can imagine. So joining us to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Amanda Hall, who is a geophysicist and CEO of Summit Nanotech. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, talk about, first of all, people don't understand where lithium comes from. What is the, the, uh, the typical way at the moment uh, when it comes to, to mining lithium? Where does, where does it come from? How is it done? Yeah, so from a geological perspective, uh, lithium is kind of volcanic runoff is what it is. So uh, if you have um, lithium is sourced from from deep underground, it comes up through the magma of the of the volcano. And then over time with erosion, it washes down the sides of the volcano and then it settles into deposits Um and it usually settles as a salt, so it's like a salt formation. Um, but it also can solidify into a granite-type rock. And so there's lots of different ways that lithium is sourced on our planet. So, for instance, down in Australia, they do hard rock mining for lithium, where they take a rock that's about 1% lithium and they grind it up, they dissolve it in acid and pull the lithium out um, through a pretty extensive process. But you can also find lithium in sedimentary clays, uh, like in the USA, uh, and then you can find it dissolved into salt water that is trapped in aquifers underground. So three really cool sources. Yeah. It also comes. It's also in the oceans, but in such low, low, low concentrations that it's not. It's not worth it to try and get it out of the ocean. All right. So, so talk about why it's so important, because this speaks to the sort of batteries we use, whether it be smartphones or even electric vehicles, as mentioned. Why is it so crucial? Yeah, so lithium is the lightest, most energy-dense element on our planet. And so it carries, it, it gives you the most bang for your buck in terms of carrying energy. So it's the ion that goes back and forth between the ion, uh, cation and an anion in a battery, or sorry, between the cathode and the anode in a battery. Uh, so it carries electricity with it, and um, that's why it's so important. So in all current and future battery um innovation lithium is part of that innovation even solid state bar batteries will have lithium in them all right so you, you outlined how lithium is traditionally mined and it, it's basically been done that way now for for decades so talk about the process for you and in, in coming to the realization that there was a, a different way and a better way of doing this so as I was as I was looking into the extraction of lithium, I'm I'm a geophysicist, so I was kind of born and bred in the oil patch here in Alberta, and I did a lot of potash mining in Saskatchewan as well, and so I I learned a lot on how to extract resources um, economically, and that's like to me that was a big driver, making sure that um, that it's it's the most the most efficient and economic process possible. And so that that was our that was our foundation for building this technology economics. But then layered on top of that, in order to future proof our technology and and lithium mining in general, we knew we had to hit some pretty intense uh, ESG metrics, so environmental, social, and government metrics. And so we took those two kind of criteria, economics and sustainability, and we built the technology around that. We made every decision based on those two those two parameters. And so what we do is we we take a brine uh, out of the ground. We drill so it's the same as oil. You drill a well, you bring brine to surface, 
And then once it's at the surface, we have uh, kind of a series of nanomaterials that will selectively draw the lithium out of that brine water. And then we take the lithium depleted brine, so all the brine that doesn't have lithium anymore, and we put it back underground where it doesn't cause any damage. It goes right back into another aquifer or the same aquifer farther away. The, the injection philosophies are different in every country, so you kind of have to adhere to what the governments want in each country. Um, but that's that's essentially it. So that is the most sustainable way that you can get lithium out of the, out of the earth without causing a lot of damage to the environment. And uh, and it's pretty cheap overall. Like it's we bring OPEX down with this new process, which is attractive to miners. Wow. So it's still in the development phase. I understand you have a lab in uh, in Bear's Paw. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a technology so, yeah. center there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so how far along are you? I mean, you know, what point is, is this, you know, practical and, and doable in the real world? Yeah, so we're, we're building our 40-foot CCAN right now. It's a pilot unit that we'll be taking to the field. Um, and it will, it's probably going to be in the field at the end of the year, so sometime between September and December. And we'll be processing anywhere from one to 10 cubes a day. Like we'll do as much as we can, um, start off small and then ramp our way up to as, as high as we can get in terms of rates of flow. But then all that pilot is really doing in the in situ environment is learning about what's coming out of the ground, what kind of data we need to collect. We really want to put a lot of automation into our modular units as well and, and leverage the intelligence behind data analytics and optimization of processes based on what our sensors are detecting and and what we know about our process and how it needs to be maintained and how it's optimized. And so really intelligently designing the extraction process using using sensors and and artificial intelligence like and I don't mean like robotics I just mean mm. like the the use of data in a really intelligent way. And so that's all yeah. that will all be built into our commercial units but those commercial units won't be ready to go to the field probably for two more years. Like we we have to scale slowly and engineering scaling usually goes by tens so you go you go from 10 to 100 and then 100 to 1000 and then that's our commercial size unit unit 1000 cubes a day. Now, the field is, is kind of global, right? I mean, lithium is mined all around the world. Where does Alberta factor in, though, both in terms of, you know, developing this kind of technology and, and even as, as a potential source of lithium? I know that, that a lot of companies are looking at, you know, can we get this brine out of, out of the oil field, for example? So talk about Alberta's place in all of this. Yeah, so Alberta's, what Alberta has um, readily available is just the infrastructure and the know-how. Mm-hmm. It's so It's so easy to operate here compared to like a South American (laughs) kind of operation when you're in the desert. Uh, But, you know, a a desert in Chile is no different than northern Canada, right? Like you're so remote and there's not a lot around and you've got to figure out how to just be um, operational, independent of anything else uh, and and travel long distances. But um, so so just for context, like a brine in South America would have about a thousand parts per million of lithium in it. But a brine in Canada has more like 100 parts per million of lithium. So you get, for the same barrel of brine that you bring out of the ground, you get 10 times more lithium from South America than you do in Canada. And so the operating margins just aren't as aren't as big here. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that doesn't mean it, it won't it won't be something that we can continue to work on in the future. Like and and that's what our extraction technology actually does a really good job of of grabbing onto the lithium 
and pulling it out of the brine so that you don't have to use a lot of chemicals and energy. And so it does bring down our OPEX quite a bit as well. So um, what, what would not have been economic with an old process, processing technique for lithium extraction is becoming more economic with new technology. And so it's not unlike fracking where, you know, in the old days, uh, you would never dream of pulling oil out of a shale or, right. or, or out of a rock that needs fracking. But with technology came that opportunity to, to attack these unconventional resources. And I would say Alberta is classified as an unconventional lithium resource. It's not, what typic- it's not the typical place where you get lithium. Certainly, this is uh, attracting a lot of interest globally for for obvious reasons, and uh, that interest, as I understand, is also included uh, a fellow by the name of Elon Musk, among <laughs> yeah. others. Uh, but just yeah, to talk a bit about that side of it, and just you know that that this is getting noticed, definitely. Yeah, so a lot of the end users of lithium, like car manufacturers or battery manufacturers, they're looking at investing in the upstream process so that they can secure the supply chain. And so Elon went out and bought 10,000 acres of lithium-rich clay in Nevada. And he, you know, he, he talked on Battery Day about how he was planning to get the lithium out of that clay. But in the background, he also is building a lithium hydroxide upgrading station in Houston. And he's investing in Australian lithium plays. And like he's kind of dabbling all over the world, securing lithium supply. And so one of the things we did as a as a technology extraction company is we reached out to the people at Tesla. And I didn't actually get to talk to Elon, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but I did talk to Elon's cousin, <laughs> so, who's, who's a pretty um, important person in the company. And we talked about the technology with Elon's cousin and we asked for samples of the clay. Mm-hmm. And he said that they weren't at that stage yet, that they were giving away samples to, to, uh, to explore extraction technologies. But he did say, rest assured, Elon is watching you. <laughs> and so, so that was enough for us to think, you know, like if, if the likes of Elon Musk are in this space trying to secure the supply chain, then that means it's an important, it's an important product. And it, it's a chemical. It's not a commodity. So lithium is not a commodity. It's not globally priced. It is spot priced. So you can have a contract with with a battery manufacturer and get a certain price for lithium and it's wildly different one contract to the next so it's not controlled it's not regulated it's kind of just all over the map so there's a little bit of risk on that front too because you know you can model out your economic forecast till the cows come home but if the contract wants a cheaper price they'll get it like it's it's kind of like a midstream gas upgrader where the gas is like it's not a it's not a it's not a priced commodity it's just kind of floating if that makes any sense yeah well yeah it's, it's certainly fascinating it's going to be interesting to watch this all play out uh, much more at summitnanotech.ca it's the website for the company amanda all the best with this and uh, thank you so much for making some time for us here today really appreciate it thank you thanks for having me take care all right you too uh that is amanda hall a geophysicist and also the ceo at summit nanotech uh, summitnanotech.ca based here in alberta so some pretty interesting work they're doing it's definitely getting noticed by uh, people who, who have a vested interest in uh, lithium supply. So something to keep an eye on. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.